Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Carrie Gracie, a name heard around the world because she publicly challenged her employer, the BBC, on equal pay. She's since written a book called Equal about her experience with advice on what women tackling similar situations can do. Carrie, I want to talk about equal pay, but before we get there, can you tell me when was the first time in your life you thought, hmm, I'm being treated differently because I'm a girl? Well, possibly from a young age when my dad used to say, and it was a joke, but it used to annoy me and my three sisters. He used to say, can I introduce you to my second unmarried daughter or can I introduce you (laughs) to my third and fourth unmarried daughter? And it was kind of riff on Jane Austen. But obviously to us growing up, it was a kind of Why is that even funny? Mm. But I think, I mean, really different treatment, probably. I didn't even notice it when it first happened to me because I was so very determined that I was gender blind and lived in a gender blind world. As far as I could make out, I was going to be entirely equal in my life and everything about my life was going to be perfectly equal. So I think it was only when I had children that I realised that I had built this dream, you know, out of a sandcastle. And at what point would you have started calling yourself a feminist? If you and I had met when I was mm, 17 or 18, I probably would have said I was a feminist, but I wouldn't have understood what that meant. As in, I would have felt that I was a feminist because I expected equality and equal treatment and equal right to work and and I would expected my partner to be an equal parent and all the rest of it. But I wasn't an active feminist who understood why feminism is necessary until I suffered my own hits at the hands of misogyny, etc. And the unequal expectations of women and men in our society and assumptions made about what your role is or my role is or his role is. It was really only when I came up against some of that that I would say that I was a fully-fledged feminist. 
You seem early in your life to have become unbelievably intrigued by China and also to be very determined to be a person at the BBC, someone who really values the public broadcaster here. Can you explain both of those to me? I came from a big dysfunctional family, quite an idealistic family. So the BBC kind of fits for me in that respect. It's a big dysfunctional idealistic family. Um <laughs> The China bit, yeah, I mean, that was a bit left field because I hadn't had anything to do with China in my early life. I didn't know anyone from China. We had no Chinese influence in my family. But there were various linguists in my family. My dad had been an Arabist in the Foreign Office and my aunt was a UN standard interpreter in French and Spanish and Russian. And so people who were interested in other parts of the world and could speak about them with some authority and had kind of immersed themselves enough to learn the language to a to a high standard. And I suppose, you know, I have never thought about this before, but I suppose if they had Russia and the Middle East covered, then China was one place that nobody else in the family had covered and I was going to stake it out, I guess. But once getting to China, which I did when I suppose I was 23, when I went to be a teacher in first in Southwest China and then in Northeast China, spent a year there. And it was a huge culture shock to me. I could not imagine there was anywhere quite that different on the planet, socially different, culturally different, topographically, everything different. And I was also extremely annoyed that I had not mastered Chinese in the space of that year. And it was like, well, that's no good. I can't let that beat me. So then I started doing Chinese at night school when I got home to the UK and it became a kind of, I'm not going to be beaten by this. And then, you know, it's like, is the cow going to eat the snake or is the snake going to eat the cow? It's like, oh, okay, China then somehow morphed into a huge factor in my life. (laughs) Well, you've done incredibly well to master the language because everybody I know talks about how complicated it is to learn. It is not easy. Not easy. And so these twin passions come together. You are the BBC's correspondent in China for quite a long period of time. You end up returning from China because your daughter is unwell with childhood leukaemia and you also suffer a battle with breast cancer yourself. Now, either of those things would take a huge amount of resilience, both of them, in one life. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. I think, in a way, the first huge challenge in my life was my mother's death when I was 17 and she was 42. So it transpired when I got breast cancer that we have the genetic mutation, the BRCA1 genetic mutation, which was my mum died of ovarian cancer. And I think that was, I would describe it as being the worst experience of my life, my mother's death. And then I slightly laugh because it's obviously odd to put your experiences and your challenge and to kind of rank them. But I was asked to do this by a reporter from The New Yorker last year, I think, in relation to she wanted to understand how my equal pay fight fitted on my kind of scale of difficulty. And so she forced me to think about this. And I think the worst experience I faced was my mother's death when I was a teenager. And then my daughter's leukemia was definitely right up there as an awful experience. And then my own battle with breast cancer felt much easier by comparison. And I think it's partly 
because I had a good prognosis. I had good doctors. All I had to do was follow instructions and look after myself. And that was my contribution to getting better. So in a way, it taught me a lot of things about life, that struggle. And previously, those two other struggles that I mentioned, my mother's death and my daughter's leukemia. Life is short. We have to do what matters. We have to put our shoulder to the wheel and do our best. And it means I'm quite an impatient person as a result. I don't want to wait another half century for someone to get round to doing the right thing in relation to a problem that I see as urgent. I, I know we're going to come on to equal pay, but that in a way is what was driving me when I got to that was like, life is short. I've lost my mother. I almost lost my daughter. I almost lost my own life. Thanks to great doctors, I and my daughter are still here. And I expect people to solve problems. And I expect to try to solve problems rather than sit around thinking of reasons why we can't solve a problem. So let's come on to equal pay. And I want us to just be clear as we do this about terminology. And many people would think, well, look, the whole gender pay thing now is really about women tending to be in industries that are paid less or women tending to be in occupational grades that are lower down the hierarchy and lower paid, we should be clear at the outset, your equal pay battle was actually about being paid less for doing the same job as a man. So I understand the way the story starts. You are pressed by the BBC to return to China to be the first ever China editor. And you specifically say, well, I'll do that if I get equal pay to those around the world who also hold editor positions, like, for example, the North America editors, uh, the BBC having an editor in the US. And the advertisement for the job actually said that the position would be on par with those other editors. Yet, didn't turn out like that, did it? No, it didn't. And as I described it, it's like being Ginger Rogers to Fred Astaire. She does everything he does except backwards and in high heels. And in my case, that meant doing it in Mandarin, Chinese, and with a police state on my back. It is not easier to be China editor than it is to be North America editor. In fact, one BBC programme joked, oh, well, you know, if, you, if you're China editor, you just have to watch a couple of episodes of Kung Fu Panda. Whereas if you're North America, I mean, you have to learn how to say sidewalk. It is really very challenging. <laughs> so the point being that these are jobs on a par, or you could argue that the China editor is a harder job. I never tried to, I never tried to argue that I was worth more or should be paid more. I just argued that I should be paid the same or else someone was going to have to give me a good reason, which made sense to me, for paying me less. And as you mentioned, I discovered in um, July 2017, by accident, because the BBC was forced to publish some pay figures by the government because it's got fed up of high pay at the BBC. The public were fed up with it. The, you know, the parliamentarians were fed up with it. And the government insisted that the BBC publish some high pay figures. And it turned out that my male comparator, the North America editor, as you mentioned, was earning, you know, nearly twice as much as me. And obviously that was a shock because I had, as you said, insisted on equal pay before I went. And I had done a really good job. You know, I said earlier in this interview that 
I kind of moved from one large dysfunctional biological family to my large dysfunctional BBC family, yet both were idealistic. And I'm somebody who believes in living your values or I want, I mean, none of us can live our values every day. I'm not unrealistic either about, you know, what's achievable, but I think we should aspire to live our values. And that's certainly the job that I was doing out on the front line in China, facing surveillance, the occasional detention, quite a lot of censorship pressure, enormous time difference and reporting challenges of all kinds. And I felt that it's not okay for the BBC to lose its moral compass at home when I'm out there trying to drive by the moral compass on the front line. And I think this is a really important point. I mean, you could have served your time as BBC China editor for however long you wanted to hold that job, uh, living in China, come back to some other role in the BBC and actually never known about this pay disparity. I mean, and many women uh, would be working at the next desk to someone, potentially listening to this podcast in their lunch hour, and they don't know what he's being paid. And for all they know, he's getting paid more than them for doing the same work. I mean, pay transparency is vital, isn't it, to the equal pay struggle? I think so. And you started by explaining the, you know, the ways people account for gender pay gaps and the fact that I was doing equal work. I think a lot about this is obfuscated. I think women are often doing equal work, whether that's doing the same work or work of equal value. But there is a difficulty due to unconscious bias and conscious bias and a kind of cumulative market impact, which has women due to the motherhood penalty and unequal assumptions by employers and by society about what role women will play in caring and what role men will play in caring. As a result of all of these factors, which are very nuanced and complex and bamboozle us, we get to situations where women and men, particularly later in their careers and higher up in seniority, can be doing exactly the same work or work of exactly the same value. And the woman can very easily be earning a huge amount less than the man. And as you say, it is very easy for none of us to be any the wiser because of pay secrecy and taboos around pay. So we have to get talking about pay. That's lesson number one. Oh, yes. When you learned about this huge pay disparity, you decided to challenge it and you were very clear that unless it was resolved, you would be resigning the position as China editor, returning to London and doing some other form of work, but no longer being in the field for the BBC. And you went through two processes, one internal, one external. The internal one was a complaints process that worked its way through and then there was a review and that worked its way through. Can you tell us how that felt to go through something as mind-numbing as the process you describe in your book and what the outcome of all of that was? So that internal process lasted for nearly a year. And in some cases at the BBC, it lasts for longer than that. And according to British employment law, employees are expected to exhaust the internal complaints process. It's common employment culture and tribunal culture to expect an employee to exhaust internal process before they go to an employment tribunal. This is in order to allow people of good faith to sort the problem out themselves and to avoid overburdening the courts, which are already completely deluged and are facing delays of two to three years. So the internal complaints process, however, needs to be a good faith exercise. And unfortunately, I felt at the BBC, 
many of my colleagues felt at the BBC. And I would say this is echoed across the economy because as soon as the other process started, the more public one, women started writing to me and telling me their own stories of similar process. It feels like you're being gamed. Your employer has all the information, all the lawyers, all the experience of fighting these battles. And you as an employee are at risk of losing your job, of destroying your career prospects, of spending money on lawyers and damaging your financial security. And you face an enormous amount of stress. I mean, it's really hard to imagine until you do it yourself how stressful it is. I joked about it before I did it. I said to my my lawyer was warning me. I had a pro bono lawyer, a great lawyer. And she was going, Carrie, you know, what happens in these processes, they have to belittle your performance. They have to cut you down in order to explain why you were paid less than the relevant man. And I just laughed that morning. I was off to my grievance hearing and I said to her, I just got off a plane from China and I'd just been reporting on the Chinese Communist Party Congress. And I said, but I eat Chinese Communist Party officials for breakfast. I'm not going to be afraid of a few men in chinos, am I? And I paid for that arrogance because I very shortly discovered how enormously stressful it is. Because all those people who have power over so much of your life, that your income, your career, your self-respect, they are obliged by that structure of the process, or they feel anyway obliged, I guess, to tell you just how wanting your work is. In the book, you actually describe this process as worse than your battle with cancer. And it did end up with them saying that you were, quote unquote, in development. Well, you can laugh. And and my son Daniel laughed. You know, we were coming back from the parliamentary hearing and and it was like I had had to deliver this line not just to, you know, the MPs at the hearing and not just to the room full of BBC women behind me, but to the world which was watching on TV screens. And it was like, okay, in everyone's mind now, I'm the person with in development, scolded on their forehead. And Daniel, my son, said, yeah, but you have to admit that's funny. And everybody else found it funny, but for me it was... It wasn't funny. How could the BBC, which I'd worked for for three decades, which is, as I'd said in that parliamentary hearing, a journalistic operation whose raison d'etre is to tell the truth, not to sell tyres or toothpaste, but to tell the best approximation of journalistic reporting truth that we can arrive at. How could it do that to me after that time? It was very, very painful. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. No, I can understand it. I'm in ridiculous patronising all of it. With this internal process came an external process, a very public one. You talk in the book about the morning you jumped and took all of this out to the people, not only of the United Kingdom, but this resonated around the world. Can you explain exactly what that jump entailed? Well, it was an accident of 
timing, but one where all kinds of things just seem to align, that I happened to be presenting the BBC's, in a way, biggest flagship morning programme on the day that my public letter was being published. So to explain the public letter, I was getting to the end of the first stage of the complaints process. Oh, in fact, the second stage, there's an informal complaint and then there's a grievance. And I was getting towards the end of the grievance process. And I no longer believed in this process for various reasons, which we probably don't have time to go into in detail. But I felt it was a cynical exercise, not a good faith exercise attempting to establish facts. I decided to take the issue to the audience because I was not alone. This is the important thing about my story. I was among what was at that point scores of, probably just over a hundred actually, and later became hundreds upon hundreds of women who felt the same at the BBC about the equal pay issue. So we were felt very strongly that the BBC was resisting the case, was resisting the case that we were making and was resisting our truth and gaslighting us, you know, because of its fear of the liabilities or because it simply undervalued women. It was hard to tell where the problem actually lay. But anyway, I wrote this letter to audiences to go above the heads of our management to the bosses of the management who are the British people. And I said, I'm really sorry to make myself the story. It's not something I choose to do. But I believe that the BBC, which belongs to you, the licence fee payer, is running a secretive and illegal pay culture. Then I told my story. I do believe that silence breaking is necessary around this. So I kind of broke the silence around the BBC issue. And that letter was published on the same morning that I was presenting a flagship show. So I arrived at 3.30. Well, I got into a taxi at 3.30 in the morning and recoiled to see my own face on the front pages of the newspapers. And then I had to walk into the building under the huge statue of George Orwell that we have at our entrance etched into the wall it says if liberty means anything these are George Orwell's lines if liberty means anything it means the freedom to tell powerful people what they don't want to hear and I thought right on George and walked in and it was a very difficult morning because obviously I had made myself a big news story on a morning when I was actually delivering the news. And for the BBC, that is a hugely uncomfortable situation for us all to be in when a key presenter is the news story of the day. So I felt internally conflicted because, of course, I'm a very BBC person and I knew that I was creating a very odd, (laughs) a very odd situation. So it felt very awkward and I knew a lot of people would disapprove and I knew a lot of people would think I was mad and and I feared the public would just think I was a greedy princess demanding more money. I feared they wouldn't understand my message and I feared my colleagues would be angry with me for washing our dirty linen in public. So I expected to be excoriated by all the people who normally hate the BBC, uh, you know, in other parts of the media, plus by my own management, plus by my colleagues and plus by the public. So it was a lonely moment, as well as having to present three hours of live radio. And yet then when the green mic lights came on, I heard, and this was very lucky for me, I heard Oprah Winfrey's voice. And Oprah had been an equal pay warrior in her own right a couple of times, once on her own behalf and once on the behalf of junior women in her production team. And she obviously has an amazing voice. And she was at the Golden Globes and she was saying, time's up. (sighs) Women need to speak their truth. And I listened to her and I thought, wow, 
you know, the universe has smiled on me this morning. That was exactly the pep talk I needed before my three hours of live radio. So I thought, thank you, Oprah. Thanks for that message. And now I will kind of shape up and get on with the day and do the job I came here to do, which is to be a professional, delivering a high standard of work and showing everybody that the message about women's equality is a lived experience. And there's just such a wonderful lesson in that about the power of role models at the right time, how it can really strengthen someone's resolve and make them feel supported. I mean, the universe, you say in your book, dealt you a good turn on that morning. It really did. And I think, you know, that's one of the pieces of advice that I put into the book, in fact, is to listen to the voices of women who are your role models, who who speak and to you, who resonate for you, especially at key times when you feel small or feel afraid or feel unconfident, channel those powerful voices. I want to just come back to your mention of the other women at the BBC who were all campaigning with you and for themselves. The equal pay issue was your individual issue, but there were many individuals in exactly the same style of position. You talk about the sisterhood in the book and you use this wonderful phrase, a hive mind. Tell us what you meant by that. Yeah, it's kind of a hive mind and a hive heart. The hive mind is absolutely crucial because one of the things that makes it hard for women to see the facts on pay is the secrecy that we were talking about a moment ago. And many employers guard pay data very closely precisely so that employees can't do that compare and contrast thing amongst themselves. And I'm not saying I don't understand employers' reasons for doing that, but obviously it's not helpful to the question of equal pay because it doesn't allow the kind of transparency which gives women an opportunity to see where the gaps are not justified. Because we had this hive mind, we shared our information. And from sharing our information, we could build our own sense of the patterns that were in operation. And that meant that when your line manager or boss or grievance hearing manager said, well, you know, we're paying him more because this skill that he has or that experience that he has is worth more than the other skill that you have or the other experience that you have. We knew that on the other side of the pitch, they were paying a man more for precisely the skill that the woman had or the experience that the women had. So we could start dismantling the defences for unequal pay due to that hive mind. And the hive heart that I mentioned is vital too, because I do think coming back to the experience of being gaslit and belittled is very overwhelming for an individual. But if you have a group of comrades and sisters fighting it together, you can help to hold up the mirror to each other. And you can believe, you know, that you yourself are rubbish because if you're told it enough times and you've been told it enough times in your career that you're worth less than a man, then you can, in your moments of weakness, believe that. But if you see the management say it of someone you know is brilliant, you know, you're not emotionally invested in your own low self-esteem, then you know it's rubbish and you just feel indignant on her behalf and you say to her, you're not rubbish, they're talking nonsense, get out and fight your fight. And if you're all doing it for each other, then the fight is stronger. 
Mm, that's a wonderful image of women supporting each other through those kinds of hard struggles. And for you, at the end of this, what seems, as you read it, horrible, belittling internal process, whilst you've been in the middle of this external, uh, people are reading it in the newspaper, people are talking about it, questions are asked in Parliament, you go to a parliamentary committee. At the end of all of that, the BBC doesn't extend to you equal pay and you have to stiffen your spine once again and make the decision you're going to go to the next stage, to the courts, then before you absolutely have to do that, finally there are some sensible negotiations and the fact you were paid unequally is effectively acknowledged and you were awarded more than £300,000 of back pay. What do you do with the money? (laughs) I gave the money away. I gave it to the gender equality charity in the UK, the Fawcett Society, for two causes. One was to fund legal advice for low-paid women who have no union support or no legal support. And that was because I was horrified by how hard the experience was. Even for me, you know, I'm a resilient person. I've been through the personal challenges that we talked about earlier. I've been through the professional challenge of dealing with the Chinese Communist Party at close quarters. And I was fighting my case with the benefit of a huge sisterhood of, you know, incredibly forceful women journalists with a great pro bono lawyer, with my union behind me, with the public by this stage behind me and parliament behind me. And really, you could almost say the regulator, well, certainly taking an interest. And so despite all of that, I at times felt very lonely and challenged. And it was unthinkable, unbearable to imagine how it must feel for women who have to fight it alone. And I did think about that quite a lot because, as I mentioned a moment ago, lots of women started to write to me when my, you know, when I wrote that open letter to the public, hundreds of women started writing to me, stopping me on the station platform or on the top of the bus or in the post office and telling me their stories. And some of them were heartbreaking. And it's hard to say whether I feel more sad to recollect them or more angry to recollect them, but it's just heartbreaking. And therefore, they need support. And so I thought, well, the very least I could do was was provide that money because I was already well paid. My fight was never about the money as such. I feel public service broadcasters should not take more out the public pot than they than they need to. I was already, you know, very generously paid. The problems of pay at the BBC, actually, I would rather they sorted out equal pay for the people at the bottom of the pile than just the high profile people at the top of the pile. I also wanted to deal with my naysayers because, of course, there'd been lots of spin against me in the media by this stage, saying precisely that I was a greedy princess. And by giving the money away, I made the point that my fight had been about principle. And also, I hoped to make the point to my management. I don't know if they took this point, but I hope to make the point that what is very important for women in this situation is respect and self-respect. Because if you don't pay women equally, you're undervaluing them. And that is a denial of respect. And for me, aged at the point where this fight started 55, if I wasn't going to be equal with a man at age 55, fighting on a front line in China, doing amazingly good work, if I say it myself, if I couldn't be equal at that point, I could never be equal. And it was a question of self-respect for me. So having won the self-respect of the equality, I could give the money away perfectly happily. What would you say now, and I'm sure young women come up to you a lot of the time because your story is now so well known, 
what would you say to her about what she needs to do in her workplace to make sure she's being treated fairly and paid equally today? And as she moves through her career and takes different jobs, what should she do each step of the way? I think the first thing to understand for young women is it's on you. Don't imagine that because you have a boss who seems quite nice, that because there is a half century of equal pay legislation in the UK or in other countries around the world, that that is going to protect you. Unfortunately, the world is constructed so that there is still a large measure of pay secrecy. And behind that wall of pay secrecy, there is a lot, and I mean a lot, of unconscious and conscious bias, which hurts women and which hurts people of a different sexual orientation and which hurts people of different ethnicity, race, religion or disability or age. There is a lot going on behind and the law is not adequate to protecting you because basically the law is gamed in favour of employers. In my view, that's not even to the employer's advantage long term. I think it hurts them in the long term because they misallocate the talent of their organisation and misjudge the talent of their organisation. However, you can see why in the short term it seems to work for employers. And unfortunately, they have, through their control of the data, through their control of the weaponry of the legal system in terms of legal advice, consultants, etc., etc., the law cannot adequately protect women at the moment. So you have to, as a young woman, start protecting yourself, is my advice. And that means that from your first job to your last job, you need to think about what value you're delivering. What is your contribution? Is your contribution seen adequately by your boss? Is your contribution understood by your boss? Because however much you might think that your boss can is all-seeing and understands what you do, they may very well not. And because of the biases that operate in this world, they may have undervalued some of what you're doing. So start talking about it. Read the gender pay gap of your organisation. Look at whether the leadership of your organisation looks like you or whether it has any intention of ever looking like you. Do winners ever look like you? And if not, why not? And if not, should you stay? So start thinking about these things and talk to other colleagues, men and women, about pay if you can. Maybe start with someone who's left or leaving. If that even feels awkward or embarrassing, maybe start with your friends or family. Start thinking about and maybe write down for yourself what about your work is meaningful and valuable. And I think once you start thinking it aloud yourself, once you start getting it onto paper, once you start talking to people about it, you'll be in a position to better protect yourself. And as I say in the book somewhere, you know, I found it incredibly awkward talking about pay at first. I mean, I hadn't really done it till, and this is obviously to my shame, but till I was in my mid 50s. So I had to learn late, but I'm really glad I didn't go to my grave not knowing the facts of life in this respect. And once I started talking about pay with my colleagues I just found well you know what it's a perfectly sensible conversation to have and it's like talking about death or sex or whatever else the more you do it the easier it gets so start talking about your pay. Good advice and we always conclude these podcasts with a few questions in a standard format always start with a fact and here's the fact for you UN Women estimates that worldwide women only make 77 cents for every dollar earned by men and at the current rate of progress there'll be no equal pay until 20 
69. And the wage gap is larger for women with children. Your reaction? My reaction is to say, Julia, you, me, and everyone listening to this podcast is going to sort this problem. And that is not going to be the fact. I won't be around to see it. Or maybe, you know, maybe if we really get our skates on, we'll get it done in our lifetime. Absolutely. Amen to that. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to deal with in your career? I mean, the one I suppose that comes to mind because it's now famous or notorious is my colleagues, my male colleagues. I mean, that morning that we've just talked about on the uh, flagship radio show when they went off to do an interview. In fact, my male comparator and my colleague on the day were talking about my letter and the equal pay story. And I suppose they turned it into a joke. And I think that is a form of misogyny. So this was a court mic moment, wasn't it? They didn't know they were being overheard. Mm. I don't want to say anything too mean about them. I've said what I need to say about them in the book, but it was not their finest hour. If we made Carrie Gracie boss of the world for 24 hours... What an excellent plan. An excellent plan. Out of the BBC, boss of the world for a day, what would you deliver for women? One thing. I'd put women into the leadership in every workplace in the world and different things would happen. Man, that'd be a big day if you got all that done in 24 hours every workplace in the world. I like that vision. Virginia Woolf says, mental fight means thinking against the current, not with it. What does Carrie say? Carrie says, having tried it, that this is very tiring, but it's necessary, but it's really tiring if you're the person doing it. But ultimately worth it, you're thinking against the current? Yeah, of course. Thank you very much. A woman of courage, Carrie Gracie. Thanks, Julia. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. And come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Mm-hmm.